be reading this morning from the book of Genesis chapters 13 and 14. Genesis chapters 13 and 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between you, my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemamber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddam, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings which were with him came and attacked the Rephium and Ashtaroth, Carnium, the Zuzum and Ham, the Eman in Shava, Kirathium, and the Horites in their mountains of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishphat, that is, Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon, Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddam against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphael, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddam was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains." 
Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread of a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young man have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion." Well, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I am certainly informed that this, our city, will be burnt with fire from heaven. So said Christian to his wife at the beginning of the Pilgrim's Progress. A short while after that, as he stands at the gate and knocks, seeking entrance into the way to the celestial city, the gatekeeper asks him who is knocking, and he responds and says, Here is a poor, burdened sinner. I come from the city of destruction, but I'm going to Mount Zion, that I may be delivered from the wrath to come. The remainder of the book, then, is Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city his promised home for eternity. Well, this morning, as we consider chapters 13 and 14 of Genesis, we are presented with a tale of two cities, a tale of two men and the cities which captivate their hearts. Lot and the city of Sodom, or the city of destruction, and Abram and the celestial city. The history picks up where it left off at the end of chapter 12, with Abram leaving Egypt and returning to the promised land. And right from the beginning, both Abram and Lot are named for us. In chapter 13, verse 1, Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. So Scripture makes a point of putting Abram and Lot together in our minds at this point. Last week, we saw the parallels in chapter 12 between Abram's time in Egypt 
and later the children of Israel 400 years later as they leave Egypt and go to the promised land. The parallel continues here into the beginning of chapter 13. Abram leaves Egypt with great wealth, we're told, just as his descendants will likewise do 400 years later. In verse 2 it says, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. This is the first time in Scripture that riches are mentioned. And we're told that Abram is very rich in material possessions, both money, silver and gold, and in livestock or herds, possessions. And Abram brings with him out of Egypt not only great wealth, but his nephew, Lot. And we're told in Lot, about Lot in verse 5, that Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. So Abraham and Lot leave Egypt together, going back to the promised land, and they take with them a great amount of wealth. But if chapter 12 was concerned with parallels in the history, chapters 13 and 14 are given to contrasts. The contrast between Abram and Lot, and the contrast between the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And and these contrasts have to do with their responses to the wealth and riches of this world. The contrast is seen in which treasure they treasure. Do they treasure earthly treasures or heavenly treasures? Where is their heart? As Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The first part of chapter 13 is concerned with Abram and Lot uh, resettling in the land after their sojourn in Egypt. They left Egypt, as I've said, with great wealth, both in money and possessions, namely livestock, flocks and herds and tents, meaning a great number of people. We'll see in chapter 14 that Abram has 318 trained servants born in his own household. So he has a large organization of employees uh, who work for him, herdsmen. Lot is also said to have tents, implying that he likewise has a large company of shepherds working for him as well. So they're wealthy men. And right near the beginning, we are given uh, some insight into Abram's response in his attitude towards this material wealth. In verse 2, it reads, Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So with great wealth at his disposal, as he returns to the land which God has promised, Abram stops to worship at an altar that he had previously built, and he calls on the name of the Lord. This is an altar that he built in chapter 12 after God promised to give the land to his descendants. And so I'm sure that returning to that altar, to that place, and worshiping there on that altar as he re-enters the land is a remembrance of the promise that God had made. So from this, we can gather that Abram, though possessing great wealth, is still placing his trust not in riches of this world, but in the promise of God. But as he and Lot enter the promised land, they find that their wealth creates a problem. The land cannot contain the both of them. Uh, 
they must have had quite a lot of flocks and herds uh, if the land could not contain them. And it tells us in verse 6, Now the land was not able to support them that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So what happens? There begins to be conflict uh, between their employees in verse 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. Now, you can imagine the conflicts. We're not told the particulars of it, but uh, they've come into this land. They have all these flocks and herds. Grazing and water are very important. You can imagine the herdsmen uh, having conflict over whose flock is going to graze in this pasture, who's going to have access to this water to water their flocks. The men are arguing possibly even driving each other's flocks out so that they can take a certain pasture. It doesn't give us the details, but when it says strife, that there was strife between them, you know it means it wasn't simply a scheduling error. Oh, wait, I thought we were supposed to graze here on Tuesday. No, they're, they're in conflict with one another. They're at odds. And so Abram sees this happening, and he doesn't want this conflict to escalate to Uh, come between him and his kinsman, Lot. And so he proposes a solution in verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. There are a couple of noteworthy things in Abram's proposal. First is that Abram is making an effort to live at peace with Lot. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men, Paul tells us in Romans 12. And this is what Abram is doing here. And and Abram is the older of the two men. Lot is his nephew. He's the one that God spoke to the one that God promised the land to. He, He has the preeminent claim. He could have told Lot, This is my land. You need to find your own place. But that's not what he does. He he defers to Lot. This shows first his humility and not seeking his own good above that of others. But it also shows his faith. The land had been promised to Abram and his descendants. He had been promised that one of those descendants would be the Messiah, the promised one. The offer of that land to Lot puts that promise in jeopardy. And just to put this in perspective, when Moses wrote this, the children of Israel have left Egypt and are journeying towards this promised land 400 years after these events. And along the way, they encountered resistance from a number of people groups who did not treat them well as they journeyed to the promised land. In Deuteronomy, Moses instructs them regarding these people groups. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. 
That's what Moses tells the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 23 concerning the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now listen to where the Ammonites and the Moabites come from. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with children by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Lot is the father of the Ammonites and the Moabites, the people that treat Israel so poorly as they journey towards the promised land, the people that they are commanded not to seek their peace or to let them join in the assembly of the Lord. And Abram just offered the promised land to Lot, the father of these people groups. So if you're a first-generation Israelite reading this, You've got to be jumping off your seat, yelling at Abram at this point. Don't don't give him the land. But Abram makes that offer, trusting in the promise of God. And part of the reason that he can make that offer is because he knows that the land is only a temporal blessing. Hebrews says, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So once again, Abram shows that his heart is not captivated by the things of this world, but his gaze is fixed on the celestial city, the eternal home. By contrast, we quickly see that such is not the case with Lot. In verse 10, it says, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. So Lot looks and he sees this well-watered, lush plain in the river, the Jordan River Valley. He's even heard the stories about the garden of Eden. Now remember, Noah died when Abram was 58. So Lot may have been alive, may have even heard stories from Noah concerning the garden of Eden. Adam was still alive during Noah's father's day. So Noah is one generation removed from firsthand testimony of the Garden of Eden. Lot has heard these stories and he sees the plain there in the river valley around the Jordan River. It's beautiful. Its value as pasture land is incredible. It's well watered. Does he defer to his older relative, Abram? No, he does not. It tells us in verse 11, Then Lot chose for himself all the plains of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Lot chose for himself, not for the good of another. He chose the best for himself instead of honoring his elder kinsman. And he left Abram with the hill country of Canaan, we're told in verse 12. And Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Lot chose the city of destruction rather than the celestial city. I like the way the King James renders it, saying that he pitched his tent toward Sodom. It kind of implies the leaning of his heart in that direction. In verse 13, we're given an ominous postscript of Lot's choice. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, we'll see one of the consequences of his choice later this morning in chapter 14. And, of course, we'll see 
the terrible consequences of living in Sodom when we get to chapter 19 in a few weeks. But the contrast between these two men could not be clearer. Abram's heart is towards the Lord, towards the celestial city made without hands. His trust is in the promise and the word of God, not in the wealth of this world. Lot's heart is towards the city of destruction, or the city of man, as Augustine calls it. As soon as this choice is made and acted on, God once again speaks to Abram in verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. The promise of the land is here reaffirmed to Abram. This is meant as a reassurance to strengthen the faith that he has just exercised. And then God continues expanding on that promise in verses 16 and 17. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. It's a wonderful promise, but Abram still has no children. God's promised him offspring too numerous to count. He's promised the land to those descendants, and yet Abram is still childless. The chapter then ends by placing Abram in an out-of-the-way place. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Now Hebron is in the mountains south of Jerusalem, about 20 miles It's up in the mountains, away from the Jordan River uh, Valley. He's out of the way. But this is where Abram calls home. He and Sarah will both be buried there along with his son Isaac and others. David will be anointed as king in Hebron. But it's out of the way, up in the mountains, and Lot journeys down into the river basin. Now, I don't know if you noticed as, as we just worked our way through this text, but uh, there is an important word that is repeated three times here, and that word is separate or separated. In verse 9, Abram tells Lot, please separate from me. Again, in verse 11, after Lot makes his choice, it says, and they separated from each other. And finally, in verse 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now, when we see a word repeated multiple times in one narrative, that usually means it's important. And it's certainly the case here. It's important for two reasons. First, it points back to the promise of God made at the beginning of chapter 12. There, God had promised to bless Abram, to make him a great nation, to bless all the nations of the world in him. But that promise had been preceded by a command. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land I will show you. Well, Abram had left his country. He had left his father's house, but he had taken some of his family with him. He took Lot with him. So when he finally is separated from Lot, as he should have been in obedience to God's command, then God comes and reaffirms the promise to him. The second reason this word is important is because it should remind us of something that we've read just recently in Genesis. Genesis 10, verse 5, And these, from these the coastal and peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, 
into their nations. Chapter 10, verse 32, these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided, it's the same word, separated on the earth after the flood. So the use of this word here should call our memory back to the story of Babel, the separating of the people there. So let's consider the parallel here between Abram and Lot and the story of Babel. The nations are separated from one another at Babel. Abram and Lot are separated here in chapter 13. Babel was built in, it says, a plain in the land of Shinar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan. It's clear from the narrative in chapter 11 that the building of Babel was in disobedience to the express command and design of God. And here we're told that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. God then judged men at Babel. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. That was the judgment of God. And though the land seemed fair and desirable to Lot, we're told in verse 10 that, this was, that the land was this way before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So there's a hint of coming judgment. There's an obvious connection and a parallel to the story of Babel in chapter 13. But it goes even deeper than this. At the beginning of chapter 11, we read, And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now the translation here says they journeyed from the east, but the words from thee are not in the Hebrew. It really should just say they journeyed east. The New American Standard translates it that way. It came about as they journeyed east. That's a more consistent translation because it's the exact same Hebrew phrase that's used in verse 11 here in chapter 13, and Lot journeyed east. In fact, this word is used even before Babel in Genesis, and the Lord planted a garden eastward in Eden, Genesis 2.8, Genesis 3.24, so he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way to the tree of life. Genesis 11:2, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. Genesis 13:11, and Lot journeyed east. And then later in Genesis even, we read, but Abram gave gifts to the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. There's clearly a pattern here. Eastward, out of Eden, eastward to Babel, eastward to Sodom, eastward away from Abraham and Isaac, the son of promise. Eastward in Genesis is associated with moving away from God, away from the promise, away from blessing. And that is what Lot has done in moving eastward toward Sodom in the Jordan River plain. He chose that land for its obvious desirability by the world's standards, but in doing so, he moved away from God's chosen people. He moved away from the promise, away from the blessing, and toward destruction. One purpose of the parallel with Babel is to make the point that God's judgment on the wicked in Sodom is as sure as the promise of blessing to his people. And that is as true today as it was then. We've seen over and over again in the Psalms, in the Gospels, Galatians, 2 Timothy, that we are called to suffering, that in this life we should expect persecution. 
but we can endure it with the knowledge and the conviction by faith that God will as surely punish the wicked as he will bless his people in the final day of judgment. The wicked may prosper for a time in this life, but they will face the judgment of God, even if they never face the judgment of man. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, we're told in Proverbs 24, 19. So we aren't supposed to fret or worry because the wicked prosper. We aren't to envy their prosperity. But that temptation is real. Asaph admits that struggle in his own heart in Psalm 73. He says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envying the wicked, he began to lose his sure footing in the way to the celestial city. This is a temptation we must constantly guard against and one that Lot obviously gave into. But lest we think wrongly concerning this man Lot, he gives in to this temptation. He pitches his tent toward Sodom, toward the city of destruction. But listen to what the scripture has to say regarding Lot and his choice of dwelling place. 2 Peter 2, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds." Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but isn't it amazing what Scripture says about Lot here? The Scripture calls him righteous Lot and a righteous man, but says that he was oppressed and tormented in his soul by the wickedness of his neighbors in Sodom. He chose to dwell in the city of destruction, enamored with the wealth and riches of this world, and he suffered for it. Abram, on the other hand, seems to be at peace. He's sitting in the shade of the terebinth trees, worshiping God on an altar that he has built. As the narrative moves into chapter 14, we leave Abram in the peace, in the shade of these trees. And we seem to have this abrupt break now into some international affairs. Chapter 13 ends with Abram's tent. Chapter 14 begins with an international war. But it gives a clue right in verse 1 as to why these events are connected. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar. Where have we heard that before? Oh, Babel. It was in the plains of Shinar that they built the city of Babel. This is connected still. So there are four kings in league who come from the regions of Babylon to make war on the kings of the Jordan River Plain. Shinar is mentioned first in verse 1 so that we'll see that connection. But from that point forward, he's not mentioned first. The king of Elam is always mentioned first. He is the king whom the kings in the Jordan Valley serve in verse 4. He is the one who the other kings are said to be in league with in verse 5. So Elam is the preeminent one here. Now, Elam is a province later of the nation of Persia. 
during Esther, Daniel, and Nehemiah's time. Daniel mentions that the Persian capital, Shushan, is in the province of Elam. So these four kings of Persian and Babylonian antiquity come and subjugate the Jordan River Valley. And for 12 years, the kings of the Jordan River serve the Babylonians, and then they rebel. So there's a pitched battle in the valley, four kings against five, we're told. The kings of Sodom and Gomorrah suffer a crushing defeat. In verse 10, it says, Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. Now up to this point in chapter 14, we might be wondering, why do we care about this battle between a bunch of pagan kings? Is this just to show us that the wicked kings in Sodom do get punished? But then we read verse 12. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So Lot chose the city of destruction, and now he suffers for it because of where he dwelt. Lot is taken captive. The raiders from the north have taken him along with all that belongs to him, and they have departed. Abram's nephew is to be a slave now to the Babylonians. Now the action suddenly shifts from this international war back to Abram's quiet tents in verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So what will his response be? Will he say, well, Lot got what he deserved. He made his choice. Living down there with those wicked people, what did he expect? He took, he took the best pasture for himself. The Lord's repaying him. Or will he seek Lot's welfare in spite of Lot's selfish behavior? What could he even do about it? He's one man against four kings who have conquered. He's wealthy, but he's just one man. Well, Abram's response is to seek the welfare of his kinsmen, as we read in verse 14. Now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So against four kings and their armies, he takes 318 men. Now, as I said earlier, this situation prefigures Gideon and his 300 men in the book of Judges. Can God deliver Lot from the captivity to four conquering kings with such a small force. I mean, even if these kings are not kings over vast empires, but just city-states, surely they have many more than 300 men. But God is at work. So Abraham and his men give chase. Now, to give you an idea, Hebron is located in the mountains, about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. The Jordan River Valley is north of Jerusalem, and it says that they went in pursuit as far as Dan, Dan is all the way up at the northern edge of what will later become the kingdom of Israel. This is almost 120 miles from Hebron as the crow flies. And if you're on foot chasing an enemy army, you're probably not going as the crow flies. So they went over 120 miles in pursuit and they catch up to them. And it says in verse 15, now when, uh, that he divided his forces against them by night. 
And he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So in a night raid, they've divided their forces. They've attacked these enemy kings, caused confusion, caused them to flee. And they pursue them another 45 miles or so to the northeast. It proved to be a successful campaign for verse 16 tells us that he recovered Lot along with many others and a lot of goods. Verse 16, so he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. So Abram has defeated these kings and he turns south towards home and he brings the captives back with him. And the defeated king of Sodom then comes out to meet him. And so does a new figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And once again, we see a contrast, a contrast between these two kings, a contrast between how Abram responds to each of them. Part of the contrast is slightly hidden from us in our English translations. Brian touched on this a couple of weeks ago in CLA when discussing English translations. Often, the word order is different in the original Hebrew And sometimes the translations adjust to that word order to the conventions that we are used to in the English language. This is one of those occasions, and it hides a certain construct in the text that gives us a clue to this contrast that we should see. We've seen repeatedly in the Hebrew that the Hebrew authors of the Scripture use a chiastic form that sort of builds up and then comes back down, reversing what was built up. Well, that happens here in verses 17 and 18, and it draws our attention to the contrast. The original word order in verse 17 would read something like this, went out to meet him, the king of Sodom. So in verse 17, the predicate comes first and then the subject In verse 18, the subject comes first and then the predicate. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. So if you don't remember your English class, the predicate is that part of the sentence that contains the verb and tells us what the subject did or something about the subject. In this case, went out to meet him is the predicate and the subject is the king of Sodom. In verse 18, that order is reversed. Melchizedek, king of Salem, is the subject brought out bread and wine is the predicate. So we have this chiastic form, predicate, subject, subject, predicate, that little pyramid. And the contrast is hinted at in that literary device, but it's made even more clearly uh, when we contrast those two predicates. The king of Sodom went out, while the king of Salem brought out. Melchizedek is inserted into this narrative Uh, concerning the king of Sodom to make this contrast obvious. If we were to read from verse 17 directly into verse 21, we would have the account of Abram's meeting with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Cheder Leamor, the kings who were with him. In verse 21, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, so that's, that's the interaction between the two, but this story of Melchizedek is inserted into the midst of that so that we can see the contrast between these two men. The king of Salem brought out to Abram bread and wine to refresh him after the battle. But the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram and said, Give me, give to me. Two very different attitudes on display here. King of Sodom does offer Abram something. He offers to let him keep the goods, the material wealth, the loot, 
we might say, from the battle. But what does Mel, that's my nickname for Melchizedek, Mel, what does Mel offer? He offers bread and wine. This is a priestly offering. These are the things the priests offer in the temple. And it tells us that he is a priest in verse 18. He brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And then he offers blessings in verses 19 and 20. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So he asks nothing for himself. He, he offers Abram refreshment, bread and wine, a priestly offering. He blesses Abram. He gives the credit for the victory to God. The king of Sodom acknowledges only Abram and himself. No mention of God in his interactions. One of these kings is focused on the earthly treasure while the other is focused on the heavenly treasure, the blessing of God most high. We see the contrast as well in Abram's response to these two men and their offers. Melchizedek, to Melchizedek, he responds with a tithe. After he receives a blessing, it says, and he gave him a tithe of all. Blessing as he was blessed, showing reverence for God by tithing to God's priest. But to the king of Sodom, who offered Abram the goods, Abram responds in verses 22 through 24, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from the thread of a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So Abram rejects the offer of material wealth and reward. He knows that his blessing comes from God, and he wants no occasion for this wicked king to later boast that he is responsible for Abraham's blessing. The credit for that will go to God alone. Abraham and Lot both faced choices between the riches of this world found in the city of destruction or the promise of treasure in the celestial city to come. Lot chose the city of destruction and its earthly treasure and allure, and his soul was tormented, and he suffered physically because of that choice. But it would be wrong to conclude from this that the possession of wealth itself is always bad or means that a person is given to worldliness because we can clearly see that Abram was very rich. It was a blessing from God. The key, though, is that while he was rich, even as the world measures wealth, Abram was more concerned with the glory of God and the good of others than he was with his own material possessions. Abram chose the way of the Lord, the way of the pilgrim, and God blessed him for it. And he did so with a man who prefigures for us Christ. We read this passage earlier from Hebrews, but it tells us in Hebrews that this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abram after returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, 
remains a priest continually. Now, the text is not saying that this historical person of Melchizedek had no parents, that, that he had no birth, had no death. That's not what it's saying. It simply says that he appears out of nowhere in the history and then disappears back into nowhere with no background, no record of his birth or his death, his genealogy. We don't know where he came from, who his family was. It's a literary device that he is in this story. He's a real historical person. We just don't know much about him. But then Hebrews continues and says, Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So that the Levitical priesthood receives tithes from other Israelites, their kindred, who all came from the loins of Abraham. But Melchizedek receives tithes from Abraham. He whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who has the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the, by the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So Abraham, whose descendants would be the tribe of Levi and the priesthood, Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek, and it says that the Levites, who were in Abraham as their federal head, paid that tithe with him. This made Melchizedek a greater priest than Levi. And he wasn't even related to Abraham, according to the flesh. So then Hebrews continues and says, It is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies... And now he quotes from the Psalms, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Christ is our great high priest who offers us bread and wine. Just as Melchizedek offered bread and wine, a priestly offering to Abraham, Christ offers us the bread of his body, the wine of his blood shed for us as our spiritual food, our Passover supper to refresh us during the course of the battle of this life so that we might be blessed in Christ, even as Abram was blessed by Melchizedek. So let us keep our hearts and minds fixed on Christ Jesus, our high priest, trusting in the promises of God, which find their yes and their amen in him, so that when we face the temptations and the allures of the earthly treasures found in the city of destruction, we might not pitch our tent toward Sodom as Lot did, but trust holy in the blessing of God, as Abraham did. May we, like Abraham, raise our hands to the Lord God Most High so as to receive from him all good things as we continue in this pilgrim journey from our heaven, to our heavenly home in the celestial city, forever to dwell there in the presence of the true King of Peace. Let's pray.